Join spiritual feminist and empowerment coach Joni Advent Maher for Trust Your Sacred Feminine Flow. Listen in for intimate conversations about money, transformation, and feminine sovereignty. And now, your host, Joni Advent Maher. Welcome to Trust Your Sacred Feminine Flow. I'm your host, Joni Advent Maher, mystic, spiritual midwife, and a transformational guide. And this is our third year anniversary show, and I have a special guest today. I am so delighted to welcome Shiloh Sophia McLeod. Welcome, Shiloh. Oh, thank you so much. I'm beyond thrilled whenever I get to be in a quantum circle with women like you and all the viewers and listeners that you have. It's it's such a pleasure to be with you. Mm, Thank you. I would love to just dive deep into your bio because you have so much richness that I want to share with my listeners, and, I, and then I want to ask some questions about that. So I, I really want to dive in and, and share some of the wonder and wisdom that is Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> yes, everybody put your seatbelt on. This is going to be good. <laughs> so Shiloh Sophia lives life as a great adventure. She is a Renaissance woman who communicates her philosophy through paintings, poetry, teachings, and entrepreneurship. For 25 years, she's dedicated her soul work to the study and practice of creativity as a path of healing, which provides access to consciousness. She's a curator and a gallery owner and has represented her work as well as hundreds of women artists. And by the age of 40, she achieved incredible success through being in the top 10% of sales for contemporary artists in the US. Her prolific intuitive painting process led to a desire to teach and provided the foundation for the groundbreaking work on how intentional creativity can give voice to the soul. Her method of creating with mindfulness has reached tens of thousands of students who have gained insight into the hidden self. Now, now listen, tune into this. At the core of her work is a belief that the right to self-express is one of the most basic human rights. We have a right to know how to access what we think feel, believe, and to express it in our lives. So I want to pause there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to pause there and say, let's unpack that a little bit. What can you, (laughs) because that's big. Mm. Mm. Yes. And I, I do work with the United Nations in regards to women. And so when I got deeper into what is commonly thought of as a right, mm. I started to wonder if self-expression could be a right. And then as I dove a little deeper into the awareness, I discovered that they had indeed sanctioned the right to self-expression as part of the pantheon of rights. 
Mm. And so there was an acknowledgement of that. And so then when you look further into that, you say, well, what does that really mean? And for me, it means that we, when we are living a life where there's even something called a right, right? Mm. Right in itself create, creates a kind of a privileged context. It's like, we could say, if everything was fair and just and according to the highest good for all, then we would, right? It's like the whole, it kind of creates a framework, an idealistic framework. So within that idealistic framework, I would say that if we do not know how we come up with who we are, how mm-hmm. that self gets formed, mm-hmm. if we do not know how to access our inner world to find out what's going on sort of behind the veil, if we do not know who we are, what we think, and how we feel, how will we know how to make any of the other choices about the other rights? Mm. Where are we making our choices from, basically? Mm. And a lot of people don't really know why they believe what they believe, how that belief got there, how to question it effectively, and how to potentially move into an expanded framework. So in my view, we end up in a world of people holding up beliefs that they really haven't (laughs) self-examined at the level that could create a more just and right-filled world, literally right, right way of living where all humans are treated equally and all genders are treated equally and where there's respect for all of creation. But only people who are diving into who they are would care about such things. So it's an invitation to care about who you are and how you got the way you are and therefore to act consistent with that awareness. Mm, yes. And I know one of the other pieces that you, you work with, it says in your bio further that when we find freedom from the trauma of our stories, we can invent our own legends and do the sacred work of organizing our consciousness. So I'm hearing that it's that piece, that organizing of our consciousness is that point where we can then choose consciously. Am I on track with that? I feel like the organizing consciousness almost comes a little after waking up, it's like waking up 3.0. You know? <laughs> yes. uh, the first layers are, you know, who am I? How did I get here? What am I doing? What do I care about? What's the context? What framework am I living inside of? What are the beliefs? What are the assumptions? What are the default settings? That's like layer one of wake up, right? Yes, absolutely. And then after that, it's like, well, what is the story I have about all of this? And what role might I have in impacting it or living out a story that feels more true or consistent or exciting. And so that's like another level is to mm-hmm. design that, to design one's own story. That's a level of curation. And then after that, there's the inquiry into how do I, how do I store information from here on out? Mm. When stuff happens, when bad things happen, when trauma happens, where do I put that? Does it go into my body? Does it go into my energy field? How do I store it in my memory? What story am I making up about it? Mm. Before we're conscious enough to even know that we have a a potential uh, participating starring role in the curation of consciousness, uh, we're just letting things happen uh, because we don't know what else to do. And then we notice what happened and then we make up a story about it. 
but then we still really have no idea where that trauma is stored. So then we get triggered easily because it could be anywhere in the field or anywhere in the body. You know, someone touches your leg and you're like, oh, it's this whole other flood. If someone says a certain word and there's a whole other flood, like we don't even know where we've been storing this. And mm-hmm. depending on the trauma, it just scatters into the different domains that make up our entire being. And so the curation of how to begin to navigate the sort of storage of human beingness, um, you know, is a little bit advanced, but it's where I'm interested in working. It's weird. It's, a, it's advanced on one hand because it's even hard to find language for. Mm-hmm. Right, right now, I'm like, are, are, is, this, is this like going way under, under or over <laughs> our listeners? Um, but it goes back to a childhood story of my mom. We moved a lot and she actually had quite a few husbands and lovers. And um, she, when we would leave, we'd leave often in the middle of the night. And she would say to me at some point, a little ways into the road, um, this is a great adventure. Mm. And you have an opportunity to choose how you're going to relate to this experience. Mm. And she would go so far as to have me help decide where we're driving to. Wow. Like pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Oh, we could go to the boardwalk. Oh, let's go to a, a hotel with a swimming pool. So she had engaged me in what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then I think it would even go further than that. Like sometimes I would go to a new school and she would say, um, you know, do you still want to dress the way you were dressing at the last school or do you, you know, you want to try a different name? Wow. (laughs) As I'm saying it now, it sounds kind of out there. It's a little outrageous, but at the same time, she gave me this opportunity to not be the same new girl over and over and over. And because my creativity Mm. was engaged, Mm. um, my imagination was sparked and I was like, oh yeah, I have a role in this. What is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And that put the trauma into a whole other place than it could have gone in. Yes. I mean, I just can't believe what an impact her uh, raising my awareness in a time of, yeah, pretty traumatic. There's no way I'm, I'm saying it's not traumatic. It was traumatic. It is traumatic. And my relationship to it is one where I'm in charge for the most part of the story I tell about it. Yes. Yes. The word that keeps coming to me is that there is a certain amount of mastery in it, that, that you had some mm, contribution. You had, you had some input and that there is more of a sense of, and I don't know if that resonates for you or if it speaks to our listeners, but for me, where I go to is having more mastery in my life over how life is meeting me or what it is delivering. Yeah, absolutely. And that going forward, once we've become more conscious curators of our experience and how we store information, that we can not necessarily be more prepared, but a little where we're like, okay, as things come, come to me, come into my field, come into my space, I'm choosing how I respond. I mean, that's pretty basic yes. level of consciousness 101, right? Yes. Um, but it's more than that too, because another level of that might be something else I learned from my mom. Um, even though that was, yeah, so just 
I feel like her letting me know that I could alter these stories, mm-hmm. that I had like authorship over the stories, and that I could include the challenge mm-hmm. as relevant to my path. So that would be that second piece you gave me is mm-hmm. include the challenge challenges relevant to my path. So instead of seeing it as an obstacle or something as wrong or not supposed to be happening, like well, this doesn't happen to the normal kids, right? Um, we we can make things wrong for happening and make ourselves wrong for the fact that they are happening. Yes. And I feel what she gave me was this awareness that I get to include the challenges as part of the whole and that I'm not unique to them and that we're all going to go through them. And if I did choose to include the trauma or challenge in my path, how would I do that? Which by the way, is distinct from saying I created the challenge or created the trauma so that I could learn rather it yes. happened. And then I made a meaning and got a teaching out of it after, not because I had to, but because that's how we survive. Yes. Yes. That's how we survive. It's also how we cultivate resilience and it's how we thrive as opposed to just survive is to build Mm -hmm. that in over and over. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear more about I would say this this nest or this container of your mom and and I know you had a relationship with your mentor Sue Hoya Sellers and I'm guessing that the two of them provided you with quite a container quite a holding quite a incubator for for being who you are for birthing what you've created in the world mm-hmm. I I don't know what <laughs> I would just love to hear more about like the role of the feminine in your life in that way. Absolutely. And I share it with all of you from the space of letting you know that you can be this for others. Mm. To just, as you listen to me share a little bit about these women who, yeah, created the absolute context for my emergence. um, You can be that for others. And we as communities can be, as you say, midwifing for others. And so I've had a, a unique experience that I got to have two powerful creative women and people say, well, you know, you had that and I didn't have that. And it's like, no, but you can be that mm. it takes time, but you can be that for someone, someone else. And so, yeah, my, um, Sue was in my life with my mom, Karen, um, before I was ever born. So she was an integral part of our family weave and she um, is about image and my mom is about language, but my mom is also an artist. Mm -hmm. They both are about both, but it's like each one of them took a particular, um, frame that was their specialty. And I feel like the biggest thing they did is to create a context for me to emerge in where even though all this really bizarre and difficult things were happening in the world and in our lives, it's the early women's movement. Uh, we had, uh, just so many challenges with, uh, supporting women. Uh, we were in danger a lot, Mm. so many things during that emergent time, but what made the biggest difference is actually that they didn't treat me poorly. They did not speak to me as if I was nothing. They Mm. did not treat me like I wasn't enough ever. 
Mm. And that doesn't mean sometimes they weren't angry and other things like that. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the, the sort of framework in which you relate to the child. And so I was related to as a creative, as creative and inherently creative. Mm. And they were also extremely busy with their own businesses. They're both entrepreneurs. So they're making art. So I was in a framework where I wasn't treated bad and not abused, a miracle, um, safe, also miraculous, mm-hmm. and where they were working artists. And so while they didn't necessarily say things that moms might say today who are more conscious, like it wasn't like they were like, it was goody two shoes and everything I did was wonderful and I was praised. It's not that. It's not that. It's actually just an environment where I was treated as an equal contribution Mm-hmm. Where I was a creative soul and that uh, I had my say at the table. Mm. I wasn't spoiled. I wasn't brought out and lifted up as this brilliant child. Like wasn't, I wasn't praised like that. It was just not the opposite, which I think a lot of times that's where people go wrong, well-meaning or otherwise, and how they actually speak to their children and the stories they begin to tell the children about who and what they can be. It's also interesting that neither one of them really asked me what I was going to be when I grew up or what my plans were for making money mm-hmm. or, or even, are you going to college? Like we didn't have that conversation. Mm. And so it's almost like in the absence of that dominating, what are you going to do with yourself? Right. Um, I created my own experience of what I wanted to do. Mm. So well, it, it seems to me, because I recall at some point either reading or were you sharing a story about your mom and you kind of asking her how she was able to do or be who she was at that stage in life when things were, you know, that kind of stage in history. And, and I remember you saying something to the effect that she said that she valued herself or was it, am I getting that right? Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for remembering that. Yeah. She said, um, I decided early on that I mattered. Mm. That's, it. That's it. And it's fascinating. Recently, um, she's 83. And of course, the world is changing yes. day by day. And well, maybe she's 82, 82. Um, the world is changing day by day um, in terms of her experience of it. And I sent the video to her where she was saying that Mm. and she was like, Oh honey, thank you so much because you helped me remember who I am. Mm. You helped me remember my own information. I remember who I am now in watching that. Mm. It's it's interesting how we can kind of forget who we've been and who we are. And then I wrote her a poem for her birthday and she was like, who you, who you said I was in the poem reminds me who I am. Mm. And so thinking about the loss of identity as we accelerate into the future, which is what Sue called aging, accelerating into the future, the <laughs> loss of identity when we're um, not being productive in the same way that we used to be. Um, meanwhile, she's still teaching and leading calls with me online. She's one of our favorite teachers of our community, but she is called by these reminders to who she is mm. as she's changing. Yes. 
Yes, that, that it, it seems like her ability to hold that, even as she was in the, we'll say, earlier phases of mothering you or when you were younger, gave you, I'm imagining, a freedom to know that you matter because she wasn't needing to work out her own stuff about, <laughs> do I matter? Do I not matter? How do I get my needs met through my daughter? Which can sometimes be a challenge for us as women. If we don't know we matter, if we don't know we're enough, we That's can right. see our kids as an extension. That's right. And I think, I think you're, you're right. It's this, we had other things to work on and it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. And it, the am I enough and am I lovable conversation is so pervasive and so huge that unless one can navigate that, which I have an idea about, which I'll share, (laughs) um, we don't get to the deeper stuff very easily because that thing keeps stopping us. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like a veil. Mm -hmm. It's like a really powerful veil that often keeps us from hanging out in the other dimensions of our being. Mm. And I didn't have have it. So I didn't have to move through that one. Mm. And that is a relief. And I work with women in that. So my idea to share with you about that, after years and years of hearing women bring, <coughs> excuse me, bring this topic to the table, what came up was we're asking the wrong question. Mm. And so I said, well, what is, since this question has no answer and is continually reinforced by societal norms and advertising and all that stuff. um, And since we keep asking it and nothing I seem to be doing seems to be helping them not ask it, even if it's no longer dominating their life. And I came up with, what if we said in any moment where that arose, how can I be more me? Mm. Not am I enough? How can I be more me? Yes. And I always remember that moment because I was talking to a client who just, after working with me for years, was like, everything's great. Everything's amazing. They changes it. And there's just the one thing. Like, I wasn't loved enough by my parents. And so blah, blah, blah. Right? And it's like, oh my gosh, wrong question. And so what happens when you get to go beyond that question? So that's an unanswerable question. Not unlike the desire to be seen and then being angry at our partners for not seeing us sort of, these are riddles which are preventing us from the deeper work. Yes. Find ways to go beyond that to the juiciness of revelation that is beyond those first level of inquiries that have no answer that keep Mm -hmm. us trapped. Yes. Yes. I, I talk about the idea of like filling up, like becoming full of ourselves in the best possible way. Like Mm. how do we fill up just as you said, with more of me, like more of who I really am and just be so full of that, that I am, again, not living in that place of doubt or that place of fear or insecurity. So That's right. I love that. So I would, I would love to hear about your work with women. I know what your work with women is, but can you share more about the work you're doing, particularly with intentional creativity 
-hmm. Cosmic Cowgirls, Color of Woman, those pieces to start. Mm. Yes, thank you. So the work that I do is called Intentional Creativity, and it's the most profound and basic concept that we're all living into in one way or another, which is basically that what I do, I do with intention. Just like before we started um, today, we created our intention. We wove our energy together. It's that simple. It translates to how we make the soup, how we make the bed, how we make a piece of art. What is the mindfulness we're bringing? And so it's just the invitation to do what you do with a chosen intention. That said, it, it really changes the outcome of everything that gets created in exponential and quantum ways. Example is if I'm making something in matter, taking an idea out of my mind, out of the cosmos and bringing it into something in form, while I am creating that form, I am intending and therefore impressing upon energetically and physically onto that form. Mm. That form at the level of the particle is changing. And as it's changing because of how the particle in the field work, I am also changing in response to it. So I initiate the response. I may initiate the intention. The object starts to change. And as it changes, it is immediately reciprocal back to me. Mm-hmm. And so a circuit of reciprocity is created between me and the thing that I'm creating that's active in real time. Now here's where it gets really interesting. That's a revelation enough, right? But yeah. what's really interesting is that anyone who interacts with that object or story or whatever it is, um, is inside of the field that I have placed upon that object. Mm. They may or may not be aware of it. Those mm-hmm. who are will feel it and have their own language and experience of it. It's not like I say, I want people to feel gratitude. I don't necessarily you know, prescribe uh, something that specific necessarily. Whatever they want to feel as an offering in response is what they feel as an offering in response. Mm. But they are changed by the object. Okay, ready? There's more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, put your seatbelts on. <laughs> the the object, the the soup, the the garment made by hand, the blanket woven by grandma, all of it. When it is as ex- when it is experienced by the one witnessing it, not the one who made it, the one who's witnessing it, it changes again, mm. and that also goes back through quantum entanglement to the original creator of that object. And should the creator or the observer choose to amplify the potential of that object to the rest of the world. So it would be, Wow! we could send out that blessing to the world and there's no way it won't go there. The question is to what level, to what degree, how much of this even really matters? Is it making an impact to send all this love and blessings out into the world? And examples of this would be, a sacred sites. Mm-hmm. Think of Stonehenge. Think of how we felt recently with Notre Dame. Wow. Yes. Um, think of 
thinking about the Ganges, think about thinking about the oceans, like whatever it is that we're thinking about that are beyond us as sacred or things that are being harmed, we are all feeling into that together. And each thing that we connect with is, is being changed by our presence. It can't not be that way. And we know that, you know, and I know the science is always emerging, but the basic awareness that by interacting with something, it changes. That's science, but spirit people have known that, you know, since forever. But even things that are, um, for example, like a computer or a battery, distinct Mm. from like a rose or a stone, right? Oh, if it's from nature, if it's a rose or a stone, it's going to take a a higher charge. Uh, Well, it will take a higher charge, the more natural it is, but also things that are technology-based, which ultimately come from stars anyway, Um, those also take a charge that is measurable. So the concepts I'm sharing with you, um, although it's a little bit of hack, hack science, um, it is, it is very real that these things are measurable. And again, the spirit people have known this since forever. They breathe into the bowl. They pray over the water Mm -hmm. at my church. We, the whole community gets together and prays over this vat of water and charges up the water. And then everybody takes water home and they use it for the whole year. When you're Mm -hmm. sick, when you're scared, when you have a nightmare, when you want to bless someone, like all the people. So all spiritual traditions since the beginning of time have, has done this in in to varying ways and to varying degrees. The negative side of that has been people who practice at this level of sacramental tradition are often thought of, you know, in the witchcraft domain, but it actually belongs to all spiritual traditions, including pagan, Christian, Buddhist. It's all, it's everywhere. The only place that it isn't as active is, you know, for making like, you know, combustion engines and cars. And the intent is actually to create money uh, over the safety of people which like built an obsolescence, creating things that are intended to be broken. Intention is used, but it is to a malintent. And so hmm. for, for our work, the importance, the enduring influence of our presence on our physical and energetic environment, and then it is so essential, and then inviting as many people as we can to engage in this reality, which is not new, but old was only new is that we're talking about it in a different way. Maybe, I don't know. I think I'm talking about it and it took me a long time to figure out how to talk about it. Let's just say that. So in my work, uh, which focuses in painting and storytelling, there's an invitation for people, no matter their level of skill or talent with, with painting or storytelling or writing, it doesn't matter. Uh, we believe that Creativity is not about talent. It can be, but it's not exclusively that all beings are creative. Every bone in our body is creative and that the reawakening of those often dormant, but ever present uh, codes within each person become awakened and that we create our lives and our works of art with that kind of awareness and intentionality. So we do that in our community through through classes, through circles, through calls, through getting together, talking about these concepts and exploring self-expression through creativity. We also have a teacher training called Color Woman, and this trains women through going through various feminine archetypes, how to embody their own archetype and story, and then bring that out to women. Growing up, 
I saw so much suffering and, and felt, and I'm aware of so much suffering for women. And a lot of suffering exists in our concepts of ourselves, as we've already been talking about of ourselves. And one of the places that is really damaged is women's self image, Mm -hmm. how we literally hold our entire being in our conscious awareness has been very challenged and damaged and distorted usually through, um, you know, well-meaning parents, but media, uh, you should be like this, you should look like this, like that whole thing. And so our image of ourself has been really challenged to survive. And then you put on top of that, you know, 5,000 plus years of, um, hiding and annihilating different images of the feminine Mm -hmm. and excluding the feminine as equal to the masculine in our spiritual traditions, all, all of them, even, well, obviously the Greek myths, obviously Christianity and Buddhism and Judaism, obviously those, but I would say also in a lot of the pagan traditions and even the traditions in India where they still have a goddess, like it is not reflected in the treatment of women. Right. And it's like, how can you have a goddess and treat women like this? How can you say a mother and father God? Oh yeah, that's true. Created equal, but we're not going to give women power. It's like pressed to the wall. Most of the spiritual traditions would agree that women are equal with men and that God is male and female because it's, it's in there. It's in the text somewhere. However, the female deities are treated second, just through and through and through. And there's an emergence of it from the seventies to now, but Wow, thousands of years of changing, hiding, distorting, um, accusing, calling Mary Magdalene a prostitute when she's not, like reinterpreting. It's just, it's all through it that the story being told about women in power and just everyday women is, is distorted. And we have really taken in and on that story and interpreted it so personally. And so one of my calls to guide women to create images of the feminine is to heal their own self-image and then to fill their homes and offices and sanctuaries and office, everything, right? Corporate and sacred with images of the feminine Hmm. as a way to heal and a way to counter the negative images where our girls are you know, going on a weight class, weight loss plan at seven, you know, it's like, what is going on and what is going on that we are so desperate to be seen and have created the story for ourselves that we're not. And we, we really need to see ourselves. And so painting the image of the feminine is one of the most direct and pretty quick ways to begin to see yourself and care a lot less about how others see you or other images that you may use to compare yourself to. Hmm. Yes. And it, it goes back to that idea of being the author of whether it's your own story or your own legend. It's like you, me, us taking ownership of our image as well, which is so just so loaded and potent, as you said. <laughs> loaded. <laughs> Dangerous. <laughs> Yes. So if, if women were interested in exploring those offerings, 
uh, which I, I have a number of websites <laughs> listed for you, which oh, yeah. one would be the best place to go if they wanted to just check out offerings related to that? Yeah, so colorofwoman.com goes directly to the school. Mm -hmm. Shilosophia.com is my personal website. Wonderful. And I'll, I will I'm, will have those listed, but I, I just wanted to hear from you which one yeah. would be best. I'm just this one woman, but I'm surrounded by a huge community. And so um, we have our hand and a lot of paint buckets uh, <laughs> for the different dimensions and domains of places that we work because we have online communities, in-person communities. We have a not-for-profit. We have a school. We have... You know, it's, it's almost like in a corporation, these would be different departments. Yes. But since I'm an entrepreneur, it's like they're, they present as, as, well, what is this and what is this? And it's, they're just departments of intentional creativity in my work. Yes. And I want to go back to another piece in your bio, which says your life path is a spiritual practice mm. and an offering that was awakened with the feminine divine. Mm, so yeah. yes and my first experience of you was being in a bookstore and seeing your images on a card or something your painted images of the feminine that was how I first learned of you oh wonderful I didn't know that yes I didn't remember yes so you know this gets into personal spiritual story but that's you know where to go where we have to go um, let me just first say that intentional creativity is something that is ancient and for all people and can choose, can be chosen to be sacred, but it's also neutral. Mm -hmm. So finding something to work well is the, is the same. So I don't want it to seem like someone has to be spiritual in order to practice intentional creativity. You don't, it, it just works. Um, for me, it started in my twenties even though I'd been creating for a long time, I'd been creating from the uh, looking outside. Even though my mom, Karen, and Sue uh, both worked from inside, they both also could work outside. So what that means is they could draw images from within and they could draw images from without. Mm -hmm. They both knew how to duplicate something from nature. Mm -hmm. And then they would weave that duplication with something inner. Right. And that's probably a more traditional way of doing art or creativity. Is that right? I mean, in terms of old school teaching? Well, old school teaching is, is more interpretation of some kind of external, even like the Greek gods. It's like the, the, the hand goes here. The story mm -hmm. goes like this. They're still going for something realistic. Um, Postmodernism and, you know, symbolism, we sort of get into a space where there's more interpretation and, uh, cognitive storytelling and the images. It's still fairly recent, actually, uh, as part of the art movement, although people have always, always been doing it. But what wasn't necessarily clear is how to do it. Mm. So it's, the default setting is look outside with art. Mm -hmm. Listen, listen to the song that's already recorded to learn music. These are the notes. Look at that tree in order to create the tree. Look at this recipe. So um, when art is taught, including to me, it's taught with external viewing eyes. Now, if you happen to not 
be as connected with your external viewing eyes because you're more of an internal viewing person, which I am, I could not communicate what I saw skillfully outside, mm-hmm. which equates only but tragically with the word talent. Mm. So I wouldn't be considered talent because I could not interpret external reality. Mm-hmm. Now, my mom and Sue, the, the one thing that they weren't able to tell me, or if they did, I couldn't understand it, was to go inside to get the images. Mm. So I was 26, 27 before I got that piece. That was a long, arduous journey of untalent. Yes. Before you found out where the images are. Holy moly. And it started when I was 23, but it took years to actually, what I show my students in 10 minutes took 28 years of my life. You know, no joke, get inside. And when I show artists who are already artists, but who aren't drawing from the inside, where to find the images, they're like, oh my gosh, like, where have I been looking? You know? Oh God. So, um, that that transition between in the integration of inside and outside was a big deal and a part of my spiritual awareness. Hmm. So once I got some of that in there, and this is all sort of happening simultaneously, I wanted to devote my life to the divine. And I had lived most of my life without a feminine divine, even though Sue was into the, into the goddess and into the feminine. Mm-hmm. Her, first business was actually had Gaia in it in the seventies. And I still didn't understand how that connected to me. And I was a Christian. And so I couldn't, I couldn't get the, where's the link between the goddess and Jesus basically. Mm -hmm. And so I really went through soul searching and really asked for my mother and my cosmic divine mother. And she came in the form of mother Mary which was like a complete and total shocker. <laughs> I mean, this is before you could Google divine feminine, you know, right. <laughs> I didn't have any books. I didn't have any sculptures. There was no Guadalupe candles. I had no idea. I had no reference. And so that happening was like, whoa. And I would say within a couple weeks of her awareness which was as if, as soon as I was aware of her, she was already everywhere and always had been, mm-hmm. that my internal images became visible to me. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. This is wow. like wow. big stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I was, the first time I did the first cosmic feminine image was like Mother Mary and baby Jesus inside an egg inside of a mama, inside of a mama, inside of a mama, inside of a mama. It's called Mama of Mamas. And it's got probably eight or 10 um, egg ovum going out, 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 out. And I am just automatic drawing. You know, I'm just following the pen. And I was like, this is my work. (gasps) Oh, Yeah, it was so amazing. And I remember I was so blown away and I was so on fire in my consciousness and in my body. And uh, Sue was out milking the goats and I ran out and I'm like, I did it. I found it. I found it. And I'm like, I'm afraid I'm never going to be able to do it again. She's like, go do it again. And so I did it again and I did it again. Anyway, those images are in my book called Color of Woman, which is my first book, which is a coloring book and journal. And that's really how it started. And it was so 
it was a wake up, you know, I don't even know if I'm more awake now than I was then. That was a biggie. And, <laughs> um, along with it came the awareness of suffering. So I experienced the greatest bliss balls that you could ever imagine, like ecstasy Wow! in this divine drawing connection feeling in my whole body with, with mother, mother of mothers, beyond mothers, beyond all the, whatever the names really are, I have no idea, just beyond all that. Yeah. Um, then it was like the suffering came mm. and the awareness of suffering. And there were a series of things that happened around that same time. Like I saw Alice Walker's movie called Warrior Marks and we were, we would sit at the table with her. And so I would, I just became aware, like, as if you knew, I knew cause I was raised in it, but it was as if I was aware of all the suffering at once on the whole planet at once. You know, those moments where it's like, mm-hmm. you can hear every baby crying. You can hear every murder. You can hear every rape. You can hear every mm-hmm. jubilation. Somebody's singing happy birthday. Well, world laws of war. It's like all at once that cacophony that you know, Beethoven's fugue. It's like that moment of that collision of reality was all lit up in me. And I felt like I said to myself and to the mother, I was like, how does anyone awaken and survive? Mm. Because the sheer volume of knowing is annihilating. Mm. And I felt like I wasn't going to survive knowing, like it was just Mm -hmm. impossible. And that's kind of where intentional creativity got its roots though, too, because Sue told me to put that love into my work. Mm -hmm. And I began to transmute the impact of the suffering through love in the work and did my very best not to move the energy through my body, but instead translate it into love into the work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot more details, but you know, the things that happened is that, um, I felt like the communication from the mother was for me to give everything that she gave me. Mm. And then I would learn how to navigate the underworld Mm. through that. And that is, is prophetic though, because that is what has happened. Everything that I learn, like as soon as I learn something I'm probably teaching it in the next two days. It barely has time to ripen because it's just so (laughs) core. It's just so real and so relevant. These discoveries of like what's going on with our creative soul. And so as soon as I get the next piece, like I reveal the next piece and the next piece. And so I'm so actively engaged in creativity as my sacred spiritual practice. And therefore that information, instead of, canceling me with its weight mm-hmm. is transmuted and I get to have awareness of the suffering moderated by pretty consistent ecstasy throughout my life. Mm. And I have this image of like this exponential growth in terms of those you're teaching and those they're teaching and those lives they're touching and the ways that the transmutation of that suffering is being alleviated through the through this these channels these profound channels i think so i think you're right i think that and i hope that that is that is happening my husband calls me the medicine which is just the sweetest thing he's like my job is i carry the medicine and you're the medicine no matter what i say that's 
That's his thing. That's he thinks his life assignment is to do that. And it's like, he says, you have what's needed at this time. And it's back to what you were talking about before about resiliency and thriving instead of just surviving that when people become engaged creatively, a part of themselves that's often been dormant, but is just ready to meet you um, is awakened. And it turns out that there's life force energy in that creation that moves through your body. And it's, you know, some call it a flow state. Mm-hmm. And when you are creating, whether the, no matter what kind of creating, some, some things lend itself more fully to the flow, like dancing, singing, painting, that different than like jewelry making maybe that has a lot more details or something, but who knows, right? It's the more flow and freedom you have. So the more granular I am, the less flow I have, I could still be having fun. But yes. it, you know, <laughs> so I'm talking about flow, like where you're like lift off you know? Yes. Yes. So we, people need that right now to moderate the suffering and they need not my medicine, but their own access to their medicine. I just happen to know where some potent medicine lives that happens when you create having nothing to do with talent or interpreting external reality. And so when you create your internal medicine is awakened and the feeling you have physically in your body and in your actual consciousness as close to bliss as I could imagine. I mean, it's quite orgasmic really. Mm. Yes. And I can, I can attest to that because I have been a student of yours and would love to just share that one of my most profound awakenings came in the aftermath of a vision quest I did with you and Christine Arilo, where mm-hmm. we painted our our phoenix, our rising phoenix. And as I was flying home across country with my painting, I took a nap. And when I woke up, it was as if a whole new part of me was online that I had never experienced before in this life. Woohoo! I just got chills. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, so I can attest. (laughs) Yes, and the med yeah, the medicine was awoken in me. So as you're speaking about it, I feel it where I am. Yes. And maybe those of you who are listening can feel what's happening for us as we're sharing this with you. Like to let yourself feel is a big part of all of this, to let yourself uh lessen the resistance to the kind of happening that we're talking about today. Yes. Just let it in. Let our joy be where you are. Let our love be where you are. And maybe you'll be inspired to pick up a pen and put down some thoughts or draw some images that are from within. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as we start to bring this to a close, I. I just want to say my profound thanks for being here, but most importantly, for saying yes and not giving up, like hanging in there with your journey of finding those images within yourself and living your commitment to your spiritual path. Because I see, I see the impact of that, and I just want to honor and acknowledge that. Oh, thank you so much for that. 
letting that ripple all over me. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And I, I believe you have a free gift for those that are listening. It is related to the link ingredients for Red Thread Cafe. So is it an invitation to the cafe? So it's an outline via video for ways to have cafe with yourself. Mm. So it's sharing with you the core practice that I do every single day, pretty much without fail, even if I'm traveling, which is to have time with my muse and to create a sense of connection. And in our community, we call it Red Thread Cafe. Mm. And it's, again, just so simple, just like intentional creativity, like taking time for yourself to read, to listen to music with your lover, your children, with your muse, by yourself, with others, and let yourself be nourished. And so a minimum of a half an hour to two hours, um, mm. I'm lucky, half an hour at least is spent in what is called Red Thread Cafe. And so I wanted to just share that so that um, those of you who are listening could practice that with yourself. That is the most powerful, simple thing I could offer is an invitation for you to take some time uh, with your own creative self. And you can simply um, move the pen, Mm. ask a question and listen while the pen moves, not even creating something. Mm. Somehow engage with a creative act. It activates the imagination physical body, energy body, and the field around you. Everything whirs into motion. Hmm. So that's my invitation. Oh, that's beautiful. So I hope you listeners will take advantage of that. And we didn't even, we didn't even have time to get into the, the other pieces you teach about right brain and left brain and connecting to the heart. But I know it's, it's all part of that, or I believe it's all part of that. Um, in terms of this practice and what that allows or what that fosters in your life. Absolutely. It's all woven together with it and self-honoring your, your own internal images and your own story and becoming the one at cause for that. And I I hope to see some of you uh, creating with me. Mm, I do as well. So again, I want to say thanks to you, Shiloh Sophia, for your time and being with us to celebrate our third anniversary. Yay, thank you so much for the invitation. It's truly wonderful to share this time with you and to revisit our connection. Yes, thank you. And dear listeners, I want to thank you as well for being here and want to remind you, as always, to trust what your heart knows. Thanks for listening to Trust Your Sacred Feminine Flow with Joni Advent Maher. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share our podcast with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast at iTunes.